The genius of Andreas Vesalius was that he executed. He finished his, his book and it, and it was the game changer. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm Colin Mustful, host of the program, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ron Blumenfeld, debut author of the historical mystery novel The King's Anatomist, The Journey of Andreas Vesalius. I knew that if I were to go forward, I had to be all in on writing the book. So I made that commitment. Ron Blumenfeld is a retired pediatrician and a healthcare executive. Ron grew up in the Bronx, New York, and studied at City College of New York before receiving his medical degree from the State University of New York. After completing his pediatrics residency at the University of Arizona, he and his family settled in Connecticut, but Tucson remains their second home. Upon retirement, he became a columnist for his town's newspaper, a pleasure he surrendered to concentrate on his debut novel, the King's Anatomist. I'd like to start with Andreas Vesalius, the centerpiece of your novel, The King's Anatomist. Who was Andreas Vesalius and how did you become so interested in him to write a, a whole novel about him? Well, the, the seed of the idea of this novel actually goes back about a half century. My mother worked in a, a rare bookstore in uh, Manhattan. And uh, when I was a senior in high school, which was actually 1964, I let it be known to the owners of the bookstore that I was interested in a career in medicine. They said to me, well then, you need to know about Andreas Vesalius. And they gave me the gift of a, of a biography of his that uh, just came out in 1964, which happened to be the 400th anniversary of his death. Well, I sat down uh, to read it and I found after 20 pages that I was not ready to read it. It was much too academic uh, for me and my poor high school brain. So I put it down and set it back on the bookshelf where it sat for the next 50 years. When I uh, retired, I uh, spotted it on the bookshelf, took it down, and I discovered that I was ready uh, to read it. And what I found was the story of a man who really changed the game in uh, medicine and anatomy in the uh, middle of the 16th century after 13 years of uh, dogma, which really controlled how doctors and anatomists thought from the time of the Romans until uh, 16th century Europe. Andreas, I like to call him Andreas. I feel like I'm on a first name basis with him now was very interested in um, anatomy, even as a child. He 
uh, dissected uh, small animals. Then he moved on to dogs and so on. And uh, by the time he went to uh, uh, medical school in Paris, he was a skilled operator. And what he found in uh, Paris, as he did his own uh, dissections, was that the Greek physician Galen, on whom all this dogma was based over uh, 13 centuries, was actually wrong in many ways. And he also was very unhappy with the way that this was taught. So he uh, kept this lesson in mind. And uh, a few years later, when he became a professor of anatomy at the University of uh, Padua, he then uh, began to write his now famous uh, textbook, which is called De Humani Corporis Farpica, or The Structure of the Human Body. Uh, this was a, a densely written 700-page textbook. But the big difference was that it had over 200 masterful images, which really showed largely accurately how the human body looked. And uh, while he still made some errors, he was largely right. And uh, when his book was published, there was a great uh, controversy. To go against Galen was really tantamount to heresy. But ultimately, because of the quality of his work, he won out. And uh, so he really upended 13 centuries of dogma with that textbook. Well, that's that's incredible, and and I'm curious about a couple things. First, is that Latin that the title is in? Yes, it is Latin, and his and his uh, book was written in Latin, as was all uh, scholarly work at the time. The Latin Latin was was the language of academia and the language of uh, scholars. I'm also curious uh, what you say about Galen going against him was heresy. Why do you suppose his um, authority was was clung onto for so long, even though it's been proven wrong since then? That's an excellent question. And it's something that I've really thought a lot about and can't really find great answers to it. But basically, at the time of the Renaissance in Europe in the 16th or the 15th and 16th centuries, scholars of the time looked back at the civilizations of Greece and Rome and thought that this, those were uh, civilizations that had reached the pinnacle of knowledge and what the Greeks and Romans had learned could not be improved upon. So Galen, who was really famous in his day, he, he wrote extensively and his, and his, uh, writings uh, survived into the Renaissance, what, what he wrote really was considered almost gospel. And the idea was that if you were going to become a physician in the 16th century, your job was to understand Galen perfectly. And there was really no need to really try to add to the knowledge that he gave to the world. So that makes Vesalius not just, you know, this this figure that that taught us so much about anatomy, but who did it, uh, much like uh, Galileo or or someone who was was criticized for what he was doing. I would say that the parallels are really there. Uh, he didn't suffer the way 
Galileo did. But when he published his textbook, it was published amidst great controversy. He uh, won people over right away, but there were just as many people who were savagely against what he did purely because he found so many errors in uh, Galen's anatomy. Now, Andreas himself was a student of Galen and understood Galen quite well. But what he also knew about Galen was that most of the anatomical work that Galen did was not on human beings, but on animals, mainly apes and pigs. Galen assumed that it would be perfectly transferable to humans, and he didn't do humans by and large because it was forbidden in those days. Now, Galen was physician to Roman gladiators, so he did get a chance to peek inside human bodies from time to time because of the wounds that the gladiators had, but he never was really able to do it in a in a systematic way. So what he wrote and uh, assumed would be true in humans, in many cases, weren't. Uh, Vesalius actually specifically pointed out over 200 errors of Galen in his textbook. Wow. Well, you, you brought up the Renaissance and, and the, you know, the scientific and cultural rebirth that took place at that time. And, and that, that plays a large role in your novel, not just the Renaissance, but the, the Reformation and Luther as well. Can you talk about how and why you fit some of those Renaissance and Reformation figures into your novel and, and how it played a role in your narrative? Well, although my focus was Andreas Vesalius and his uh, contemporaries, they lived their lives and did their scientific work in an environment of the Reformation in the 16th century and all, all the turmoil that was going on at that time. And I, I, I thought that to leave that out of the novel would be, would be doing a disservice uh, to the reader and to them because uh, there were, it, was, it was a huge issue in the 16th century. Um, Martin Luther pinned his 95 uh, theses to the wall, to the door of the church in uh, Wittenberg in 1517. Andreas Vesalius was born in 1514, so they lived at the same time. And uh, what was going on in Europe was tremendous religious violence that was found in really all, all parts of Europe, Protestants against Catholics, Huguenots against Catholics, Catholics against Huguenots, attacks and revenges, massacres, hangings, burnings, and so on. It was, it was a, a very important part of what was going on in the 16th century, and to leave that out just didn't seem right. Well, you, you did a, a really wonderful job of it, of I think, of pacing the narrative uh, between the story of, of Vesalius and, and his friend here, which which we'll get to in a second, but then also including all that really fascinating historical information about, uh, you know, people we all know, uh, some some we don't, but certainly the, the paintings they've made, we've seen. Um, and so I found that really intriguing part of this of this novel. But now let me ask you about uh, your main character. You know, you have so many historical figures throughout the novel, but then you have a fictional character at the center of it. 
um, who's telling the story, uh, Jan van den Boschke. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, uh, but tell us about him. How did you how did you meet this guy, and how did you end up using him as the main character of your novel? Well, when I first started thinking about the novel, I wondered whether I wanted to write it with uh, Andreas Vesalius telling the story in first person. But actually, I thought that Andreas would not be a very uh, reliable narrator. I think he, he had his own uh, flaws. And uh, what, I, what I decided that I wanted to do was to create a character who really didn't exist in real life, who knew him for his life and knew him intimately. So I invented Jan van den Bosa. That's how we say his last name in Dutch. And uh, Jan and uh, Andreas meet on the first day of school as uh, six-year-olds. They become friends, and their friendship lasts uh, throughout their lives. And Andreas really is the, is the alpha male of the two. Jan really is a, a brilliant but shy uh, person who specializes in math. He likes to study math and he likes to do it on his own. Andreas, on the other hand, is very outgoing, loves to travel. Jan hates to travel, but if Andreas asks him to, he will. So they have that kind of, a, of, a, of, of an interaction. The uh, friendship becomes on more equal term, uh, terms when they become adults, but there's one X factor that's added in, and that is Andreas's wife, Anne Vesalius. Jan and Anne knew each other before uh, Andreas knew Anne. And uh, basically, Jan, ha Jan is in love with her and has been in love with her for years. But in essence, to make a long story short, Andreas takes her away from him and he marries her. Andreas, well, that was, that was not a problem for him, but it certainly was a problem for for Jan, but but Jan is so devoted to uh, Andreas that he just uh, accepts it and goes on being just a friend to Anne. And that was that relationship was then then fictionalized. Did, did you know anything uh, about the relationship between Anne and Andreas? Well, there's there's not <clears throat> there's not a whole lot known. The uh, Interesting thing about uh, Andreas, uh, and this is where I took a bit of a liberty to, to, uh, to think about what his wife may have thought of the kinds of uh, decisions that Andreas made about his own career. Right after he wrote his textbook and it got published, he left academia. Uh, he was a, a professor at the University of Padua, which is like the Harvard Medical School of Europe at the time. And he had just put out this earth-shaking book that shook up the whole discipline. But almost immediately after it was published, he leaves academia and becomes an imperial physician to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. One could say that he did that because that's what his father did, that's what his grandfather did, that's what his great-grandfather did, and what his great-great a uh, grandfather did, they all did imperial service as physicians. 
So in a sense, it was like a family thing. But Andreas lived to regret that later, for sure. Now, getting back to his wife, Anne, Anne, I thought, would have looked forward to getting out of uh, uh, Brussels, moving to Italy and having an exotic life there. But all of a sudden, Andreas dropped that whole idea and becomes an imperial physician and is based in Brussels. So Anne loses the chance to go to Italy. Now, this, of course, is uh, speculation on my part, but I would think that if, if she were looking forward to going to Italy, uh, this would have been a big uh, come down for her. Even worse, when Charles V abdicated his empire in the mid, in 1556, I think it was, uh, he split the Holy Roman Empire into two parts. The first part, which was mainly Germany and Austria, went to his brother, Ferdinand. But Spain and the Netherlands went to his son, who was King Philip II of Spain. Andreas then went to work for King Philip and had to base himself in Madrid, Spain, and his wife, Anne, had to go along with him. I was guessing that she hated living there. Spain was, let's say, a difficult uh, country at that time because of the uh, uh, Spanish Inquisition that was still going on. It was, it was not a very happy country to be in at the time. So I'm guessing that Anne's marriage to uh, Andreas, although this is pure uh, speculation on my part, was not entirely satisfying. What happened in uh, 1564 was very interesting. All of a sudden, Andreas uh, decides to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and he decides to take his wife and daughter along. So they leave Spain and go into France, but in France, his wife Anne and his daughter abruptly leave Andreas and go back to Brussels. Andreas continues on to the Holy Land, but on the way back, he dies on the Greek island of Zante. So uh, Anne, all of a sudden, is a widow. Uh, well, when you, you put it that way, um, I can see how it's not hard to imagine they had a complicated relationship. Um, and you brought up now his his pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which, which I want to get to because that's a, a major part of the mystery in your novel. Um, but before I do, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your background. Um, you're a physician, which which probably makes you qualified to to write a, a novel about anatomy, about someone like Andreas Vesalius. Vesalius. Um, and you also have a background in journalism a little bit. Um, but how did you come to, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the background and how you came to write creative fiction and and how what some of the challenges were to crafting a fiction novel? Well, first of all, about me, although I, I got on the uh, medical track relatively early in my career. I mean, as I said before, when I was a senior in high school, I was really seriously thinking about a career in medicine. But I always liked to write, even if it was a business letter, an educational pamphlet, 
whatever it was, I always enjoyed doing it. And quite frankly, I thought I was pretty good at it. During my uh, career, I took a few stabs at short stories. Uh, they weren't uh, particularly good, but I sort of um, gave myself an alibi that I was too busy really to, to focus on writing and become a little better at it. So I sort of set it aside until I retired. And uh, that's when I started writing columns for the local paper. And it was also about the time that I read the uh, book on Andreas Vesalius, having not read it for a half a century. And uh, I, I, I guess writing columns for the local paper doesn't sound very uh, exciting, but it was sort of a boot camp for writing because I had a deadline to meet. I had to write 800 words every two weeks about some topic or other. And uh, I think it really got me going uh, to writing. And then when I, when I finished reading the, 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 the book and saw what an interesting guy this uh, Andreas Vesalius was, I, I began to think about whether or not I could write about him. And then I, all of a sudden, I said to myself that I was going to take on the challenge of writing a book about him. And, and I knew it had to be a novel. I mean, it, it couldn't be nonfiction because there's plenty of nonfiction about him out there already. And I'm not that kind of a scholar. So I figured that I need to know enough about him to sound uh, authentic, but I could link it to a pretty uh, compelling story. And, you know, however these things happen in your mind, the plot of the, of the book took sort of a fuzzy form and I started to write and all of a sudden I had 30 some odd pages written and I realized I had never written 30 pages of anything uh, before. I, uh, so I, I think that was, that was a tipping point for me. That's, that's when I felt I could do it. I, I didn't really have a writing process. I, 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 it, it sort of uh, came around as I did it. But one thing I knew for sure was that I had to make a commitment to writing the book. It was helpful to have the 30 pages because it, it uh, proved to me that I could, I could write at, at some length. But I knew that if I were to go forward, I had to be all in on writing the book. So I made that commitment. And the way I approached writing was that I didn't have any uh, rigid schedule uh, for writing, but I had to write or read about what I wanted to write about every day. So that could be 20 minutes or it could be four hours, but I did write every day. And uh, that's how I went about writing the book. I, I, I would edit as I went along and um, I also found that I needed to change the beginning. I was maybe a third of the way into the book when I realized that I didn't want to start the book where I originally started it. But it wasn't a total loss because what I had written already could be very nicely used later on in the book. Well, how did you feel when you finished the first draft? How did you feel about it? And 
and then tell me about the process of going through revisions and, and maybe the first readers that saw it and what their response was. I was very fortunate to understand that even after I had written the first draft and I, I, could, I could say to myself, I am finished. I knew really that I, that I wasn't finished. And, and I, I was uh, fortunate enough to realize that I, I really had to have a many sets of eyes looking at this text to uh, see if it was a viable uh, project. So I found about a half a dozen beta readers who took what I wrote and read it and gave me comments. And I found this incredibly useful, actually a lot more useful than I thought it was going to be. So that helped me also in, in uh, getting to the final uh, uh, version of the, of the book. And even at that point, it wasn't final, but it was final enough to then try to bring it out to the world. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the the mystery aspect of it. Of course, without revealing um, what that mystery is, there are you know, throughout the novel there are little hints that are are hard to pick up on. Um, but in the end, it's a very convincing, plausible mystery. Um, did you have to go back and add some of those elements? How hard was it to fit it all together and make it work, especially within the confines of historical fiction, where you have to stay true to some of the facts? Yeah. Well, one of my, certainly one of my aims was to stay as uh, closely as I could to, to his life and the people who were in his life. Most of the characters in my book are real historical people. And what I, what I found uh, extremely useful relatively early on was to create a detailed timeline of his life, which was very helpful in organizing my plot because I wanted to weave all these people in and out of his life and show how he interacted with them, but really trying to stick to the actual timeline of his life. But at some point, his life was um, reimagined by me. His, uh, his uh, marriage to Anne was speculative on my part. His relationship to the fictional Jan, of course, was. Um, but what leads to the mystery was this. When at the time that Vesalius goes on the pilgrimage to the Holy Land from Spain, the man who held his chair at the University of Padua in anatomy had died. And the university reached out to Andreas and offered him his chair back. Andreas wanted very much to get that chair and asked uh, permission of King Philip to give him leave to go to Padua again. King Philip refused to do that. King Philip said he was too valuable to him. So it didn't appear that that was going to happen. But shortly after that, Andreas asked King Philip to allow him to go on the pilgrimage. And the devout uh, Catholic that King Philip was, he couldn't say no. So he allowed him to go on the pilgrimage. Now, the speculation, and this really 
could be historically true was that uh, Vesalius intended to just get out of Spain and take that post anyway. This, this may be true, may not be true. People argue about this, but at any rate, that never happened, which is part of the mystery as to why it didn't happen in my book. And then he goes on to the Holy Land and then comes back and dies on the island of Zante. The way the book opens, actually, is, is in uh, uh, Brussels in uh, 1565 when Jan receives word that Andreas has died on that Greek island of Zante. Uh, Jan is bereft and shocked because he didn't understand why uh, Andreas went on this pilgrimage in the first place. It didn't make any sense to him that he would do something like this. But Jan decides to cross Europe and go to Greece and visit his friend's grave. And what Jan does was to plan a route that allows him to recap Andreas's life in the places in Europe where they were. Uh, in Brussels, of course, Louvain, Paris, other parts of France, Milan, uh, Padua, and so on. And during this visit, Jan recalls the aspects of Andreas's life, which allows the reader to understand how Andreas took shape as a physician and an anatomist. Going back to childhood, when, when Jan finally gets to Zante to visit his friend's grave, things just don't seem right. And his uneasiness about what has taken place on Zante increases to the point where he needs to take drastic steps to to solve the problem that he sees before him. And I think that's where I'll have to stop. The whole, the whole thing is really quite imaginative and hearing you explain the course of events that Vesalius went through, I, I can see how that kind of got your creative juices flowing. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, what, what I um, reimagined was something that struck me as quite, plausible based on on my own understanding of the personality of Andreas Vesalius and what he might have chosen to do based on the circumstances that he faced. You talked about the uh, journey that Jan took. Um, and as he goes on that journey, you know, he comes across some um, great scientists, physicians, artists, um, cardinals, um, and that allows you to include many paintings and drawings, sketches that Leonardo da Vinci made, that Calcar made for Vesalius, um, which is a unique aspect of your novel that you have these images in, in there. Um, your novel is also unique in that it has a bibliography and you have a timeline of Vesalius' li of his life and other elements like that. Um, talk about these images that you've included and, and also this decision to include um, some ci citations, some bibliog bibliographic information. What was so interesting about uh, Andreas Vesalius was that his friends and contemporaries were, were equally interesting. For example, one of Andreas's very good friends was uh, uh, Cardinal Antoine de Granville, who was French, but was a schoolmate of uh, Andreas's in uh, 
uh, Louvain, a university of Louvain, or as the Dutch would say, Leuven. Of course, he wasn't a cardinal at that time, but he went on to become a cardinal like his father. And he was not only a counselor to the Holy Roman Emperor and to King Philip II of Spain, but also one of one of Europe's great art uh, patrons. Uh, so I so I have a couple of uh, paintings that he owned in the in the book. Uh, when uh, Jan stops off in France at the home of uh, uh, Antoine de Granville, uh, they stop in front of a couple of uh, paintings to uh, uh, talk about them. Um, but I guess in terms of the images in in the book, one of the episodes that I uh, created, although it is not implausible that it happened, was that I gave Andreas the chance to see the anatomical drawings of Leonardo da Vinci. There was a physician who lived in uh, uh, Milan named um, uh, Cardano, and he knew of Andreas Vesalius and might even have known his father. But I, I had it that on his way to the University of Padua, where Jan went along with him, they stopped in Milan, and uh, uh, Cardano first took him to see the Last Supper, which then was only 35 or 40 years old. And of course, they were blown away by that, as most people were in those days, uh, to see that. But then the next day, he took them to uh, a villa outside Milan, which was the villa of a count named Francesco Melzi. Francesco Melzi was an acolyte of Leonardo's. Uh, they were probably lovers, actually, but we'll leave it at that. And when Leonardo died, he left all of his drawings, all of his notes to Francesco Melzi, and it was in his villa there. And uh, I had it that Andreas and Jan were brought to the villa and shown these anatomical drawings. And these anatomical drawings blew Andreas's mind because no one had done or seen anything like that. And, and uh, Andreas knew right away that Leonardo had done human dissections. It was very clear because they were not only exquisite drawings, but they were largely, not entirely, but largely accurate drawings. And my thought was that since it was not implausible for this to have happened, that this was a seed of inspiration to uh, Andreas to write his book, not only to write his book, but to write it with the illustrations and images that were in his book that were so masterful and so wonderful. So it, it, it seemed to me that having this kind of inspirational uh, event made very good sense to me. Definitely. And um, it's, it's really amazing to think what, how that would have been at that time to, to see those, those drawings, anatomical drawings, especially at a time when, as you mentioned, human dissection was kind of forbidden. Well, that's, that's right. Well, by, by, the, by the 16th century, things had opened up a little bit. And by that, I mean that if you were going to medical school, there might be a public a dissection once or maybe twice a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, uh, but there were also uh, what we would call private uh, dissections where people would dig up a grave and steal a body or cut a, a, a cut a corpse off of a, 
off of a gallows and take it into the house and do a dissection illegally. So that that was happening. But what was what was so incredible about those anatomical drawings was that up until that time, anatomical texts had no drawings, no images. So when you when you opened an anatomy textbook, you could read the text, but you had to make the images in your own mind. So it was it was very hard to translate text to what you were supposed to be seeing without having a body in front of you. Leonardo understood very well and wrote about the fact that the two had to go hand in hand. You really had to have the images along with the text to fully understand what the human body looked like absent having a human body right in front of you. And even with a human body in front of you, a good textbook with images sent you down the right path as opposed to no pictures at all. So this was a huge and revolutionary thing that happened. Unfortunately, Francesco Melzi didn't really know what to do with these drawings. I, I don't mean just, just as anatomical drawings, but as engineering drawings and all the other drawings that this genius had made, thousands of drawings over, over the years. Uh, nobody knew of his anatomical drawings for centuries after they were done safe for just a few people who happened to see them, which is uh, uh, astounding. Leonardo could easily have beaten Andreas Vesalius to the punch if he were organized enough to get his anatomy textbook out. He intended to write such a textbook with his images, but he his mind was wandering around so much on all the different things that were going through it that he could never really finish anything very well. The genius of Andreas Vesalius was that he executed. He finished his his book and it and it was the game changer. Well and you you get into that a little bit in the novel with the the printing of the of uh of his book um and a few other things but uh, you know we could talk about that endlessly uh, but I don't want to keep you too long here. Um I did want to ask as as I mentioned earlier about the bibliography and you have uh characters you describe some of the historical figures in your book and and I kind of know the answer to this as the publisher, um, but tell me about uh, the decision to include those nonfiction elements in your fiction novel. Well, as I said earlier, I, I really wanted to capture the flavor of the Renaissance in Europe in the 16th century. So I did a good deal of reading on the Renaissance and what was going on in the 16th century in Europe. There were wars all the religious issues, there were outbreaks of the plague, there was the, the uh, increasing influence of cities, which were growing. And, it and I, I wanted to understand how it was to uh, travel because the journey that Jan makes with his assistant from Brussels to the Greek island of Zante is a long journey in the 16th century and I just wanted to understand how that happened. And, and I wanted people who read the book to understand that this was no easy thing to do, especially having to cross over the, the Alps, uh, which was uh, really, really dangerous. 
I, uh, I, I get annoyed just, just when I have a layover. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but by and large, if you were lucky, you could maybe do 15 to 20, maybe even 25 miles in a day. And that would be either walking in a wagon, in a coach, or on horseback. And the sleeping arrangements on the road were way less than ideal. They were the, the inns that were on the road, although you could find some good ones, were usually uh, pretty dirty, lice infested, terrible food. And you often had to share a bed with a stranger in those inns. And what I had for uh, Jan, who was basic, who would, uh, was, by the way, born into an extremely rich family, they would choose to sleep outside or sleep in a barn rather, rather than one of those inns. And whenever he could, he would be very happy to pay to stay in a really nice inn. But those were kind of few and far between. So I, I wanted to be sure that those colors were in the book, that, that, that people understood what it was like to live and to travel uh, in, in those times. But uh, beyond that, I, I really wanted to understand what uh, medical thinking was like. What did people think about the human body? What did people think about looking inside the human body? It, it was, a, it was a, a, a really interesting facet uh, to look into. That one of the things that I, I realized was that that's why uh, Andreas was such a, such a special person. Uh, he was perfectly comfortable with uh, blood and guts, if you will. Uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't mind the fact that after a few days, a cadaver started to smell and then it smelled even worse, uh, which is why most of, of, of the work that was done was done in the winter because it was cold and the bodies would keep longer, but it was not unusual for, uh, Andreas to keep bones and body parts under his bed so we could work on them later on. I mean, he was just that this this was his passion. Wow. Well, now that you've um, you've done your own journey of writing a fiction novel and, and having it published, what's what's next for you on the the writing front? That's a good question. Um, I've I certainly want to write another book, and um, I guess I don't, and I guess it's gonna. It's certainly going to be historical fiction. I'm, I'm, I, I find myself uh, uh, comfortable in this uh, genre, and I also like the fact I, I like to do the research. That that was really a big part of the fun for me. It maybe it takes some extra time, but but I learn a lot, and and it's 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 a challenge to make all these pieces fit together. So. What will I do next? Um, I become interested in the history of uh, anesthesia. Anesthesia as we know it, uh, I mean uh, anesthesia for uh, surgery and uh, dentistry. This, this really wasn't a thing until the mid 19th century. So prior to that time, people who had to have surgery uh, went through incredible agony 
And there's a very interesting uh, story around the origins of surgical anesthesia as we know it uh, today. So that's one thing. The other thing that I, the other way I might go is to go further back in time and uh, take a look at Galen, who was quite a character himself. He was pretty uh, uh, full of himself. He became famous in his own life and he wrote uh, extensively and uh, was uh, uh, quite a showman. So I think he'd be an interesting person to look into as well. But I don't really need to uh, keep myself in uh, uh, medical things, but I just find myself interested in them. So I, I probably will go in that direction. Well, I wasn't really interested in anatomy until I read your novel, and it really um, really put some interesting background to it, you know, where we are today, especially thinking, like you said, that they had to learn it without pictures, without images. I, I work at a school where we teach medical anatomy, and I cannot imagine what that would be like without having the, the images um, so I'm sure you can make anesthesia just as interesting, just as fun to to read about. Well, I've been talking with Ron Blumenfeld, the debut novelist of the fantastic historical mystery novel, The King's Anatomist, The Journey of Andreas Vesalius. Ron, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure.